0: Daniel chapter 1, Daniel chapter 1, uh, just to give you a little bit of overview, if you're not really familiar with the book of Daniel, Daniel is found in the Old Testament. Um, interestingly enough, it's also the same time period that both Confucius and Buddha lived in case anybody's wondering. So just to give you an idea, which one is older and has been around longer? It's the scriptures. Not Buddha, not Buddha or Confucius. You're like, I don't know which one's older. Um, Daniel occurs right around 605 BC till about the mid 500s BC. And here's some really neat things about what's going on in the book of Daniel. Um, How many of you remember King David and King Solomon by a show of hands? Yeah, most of us know King David and King Solomon is. After Solomon, the nation of Israel split into two factions. I won't go into the details. But one was the northern kingdom of Israel who ended up with 19 wicked kings in a row and ended up being exiled into Assyria. And the other is the southern kingdom of Judah with the capital city of Jerusalem in which they had both kings that worshiped God and then kings that did evil in the sight of God. And by the time we get to the book of Daniel, we're told that there was a king named Jehoiakim, And Jehoiakim did evil in the sight of the Lord. Specifically, he led people into idol worship He also led people into disregarding the Sabbath rest. And maybe, most importantly, he was what was known as a vassal king. He was someone who actually paid tribute to both Egypt and then to Babylon and was pretty much a yes man to say, hey, we'll do whatever you want, just kind of leave us alone. But he did not lead the people in godly ways. And the temptation for us is to think about this time period and go, goodness, the nation of Judah is a mess. They're not worshiping God appropriately. They've turned to other gods. And now we're going to see that they actually end up being conquered by the Babylonians as part of God's judgment for their sin. Good days or bad days for the nation of Judah? We would say bad days. But just because as a whole the nation of Judah is not doing well or not in a healthy place does not mean that there aren't individuals or small groups and communities within the nation who are still obedient to God. And I would encourage you to look at our nation as a whole. We are quickly becoming what would be known as a godless nation. A nation that pursues our own flesh and carnal desires, our own comforts, and completely rejects God. And yet, does that mean that there's no followers of Christ in our country? Of course not. And God remains faithful to those who walk in his ways. And we're going to see this morning in Daniel chapter 1 that there are several men who continue to walk in God's ways and we see God's favor upon them and how God is using their lives as a testimony of who he is and his greater promises for the nation of Israel which is to come. So we begin in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Who gave Jehoiakim into the Babylonians' hand? The Says the Lord. With some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, meaning Nebuchadnezzar's God. And he brought some of the articles into the treasure house of his God. Now, without belaboring some points here, here's what we need to know. Jehoakim, his kingdom comes to an end. Babylon besieges Jerusalem in 605 BC. There's two more sieges because the Jews are stubborn people and Jerusalem's a fortified city. And by the time we get to 587 BC, Babylon comes in and wipes out Jerusalem and destroys the temple completely. And at this, what ends up happening is that there are articles or um, important sacred items taken from the temple into Nebuchadnezzar's storehouses or the house of his God, and here's what it represents in ancient culture. The Babylonian God is greater than the God of the Hebrews. That's how people would see it on the surface. And that's probably how a lot of people from Israel felt. How many of you ever feel like sin is winning the war in your life or in your community? How many of you ever feel like the world is winning instead of Jesus is winning? How many of us feel like, God, Satan continues to gain ground, when are you going to do something? When are you going to act? When are you going to move? And I'm sure all of us have felt that at some time, but I want to encourage you to ask yourselves these questions sometime this week and actually spend some time reflecting on them. The first is, will our circumstances shake our faith? Will our circumstances that we face shake our faith? Or will our faith shape our circumstances? Will our faith shape our circumstances? Now, we know the right answer. What's the one we want to have? My faith is going to shape my circumstances. How many of you have ever found yourself in circumstances going, I'm a mess, Lord, help me? All of us, if we're being honest. All of us. And I can only imagine... That as Nebuchadnezzar comes in and destroys Jerusalem, that it's probably what the nation of Judah felt as a whole. And now we're going to be introduced to some young men. Daniel and his friends that are named Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. And as you know the story, they're given different Babylonian names, which we'll cover a little bit later. But these four men are somewhere between the ages of 13 to 17 years old when they are ripped away from their families, held captive, and then taken to Babylon. What were you doing at 13 to 17 years old? Wait, why do you laugh? (laughs) what were you doing at 13 to 17 years old playing video games sports sports, Sports. surfing now what's funny is i'm listening to some of these guys that are like in their 40s i'm like what are you doing now they're like playing video games (laughs) sports (laughs) surfing When we think of teenagers in our day and age, we think of people that are trying to do the most to get out of responsibility in order to participate in the most fun. And that doesn't happen here at the Mission Church because all our kids are going to go to Awana and they're going to be great. <laughs> But for the rest of the world, yeah, that's what's going on. And you can probably look back at your teenage years, and maybe you had some responsibilities, maybe you didn't. But as a whole, it was kind of a season of life in which we were pursuing a lot of fun. There was a lot of hormonal things going on, trying to figure that out. Probably thinking that your parents, who were in their 30s, were so old, and they didn't understand you. And then we begin to think about these young men, Daniel and his friends who are being ripped from Jerusalem. At 13, 14, 15 or 16 or 17 years old, their life had some depth. God's word had been planted in their heart. They weren't perfect. They didn't come from perfect families. They certainly didn't come from a perfect nation as it was living in sin as a whole. But these men, had a grounding in God's Scriptures, and we see in verses three through seven in this introduction to Daniel and his friends, it says, "Then the king, meaning Nebuchadnezzar, instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel, and some of the king's descendants, and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom." Possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had the ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans was just the Babylonian Empire, it was the name for their people. And the king appointed for them, these exiles from Judah, these young men brought from Judah, a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And to them, the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. He gave Daniel the name of Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. We're going to unpack these verses. And I want us to bring, I kind of want to bring our attention to something important. King Nebuchadnezzar is a wise king, he's also a ruthless king, who's literally conquering the known world. He owns the biggest empire in the planet at this time. He was not a nice person, we could go into stories about what he did to some of the former kings of Judah that would not be appropriate for little ears that are in here. He was a wicked and shrewd man, but he was the best in his dynasty. As a matter of fact, we know about Nebuchadnezzar later on in the book of Daniel. Daniel prophesies and interprets a dream that Nebuchadnezzar has and says, King, you are the head of gold that you've seen on that statue. Your kingdom will be the strongest out of all these other kingdoms that are to come after you. Nebuchadnezzar was the guy, he was the guy and in his intelligence he knew this about the Jews they were a stubborn and stiff-necked people who didn't go easy and so in his brilliance of taking young men from their homeland who were grounded in Scripture and in the worship of God he begins to give them things to break down the foundation that they have been given. Imagine this Imagine that the high school group and the young adults group here at the Mission Church just suddenly got up and left or was taken away. How would that make the church feel as a whole? <laughs> sad. 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 Jasmine's part of the young adults group. She's like, that would be sad. Why would it be sad, though? Because we got to put the shovel in deeper. Why would it be sad to the church? they are the future leaders of the church body they are the ones being raised up they are the ones who are following Jesus in their young age so that they can become elders and deacons and servants and ministry leaders and pastors with that group gone it left very little hope for Jerusalem Their best and their brightest were being taken from them. And what Nebuchadnezzar is doing is two things. The first thing he's doing is saying, hey, don't mess with me. I told you to pay me tribute and when you rebel against me, this is what happens. I'll take your future and your hope from you. And the second thing that Nebuchadnezzar is doing is he's building himself a platform on the wisest men on earth. When he would go in and conquer a nation, he would take the best and the brightest, he would indoctrinate them into the Babylonian culture, and then he would use those people's wisdom and knowledge to build who up? To build up himself, Nebuchadnezzar. As a matter of fact, there's no question that there's gods in the Babylonian empire, but we know from the rest of Daniel who's really the god in the Babylonian empire. It's Nebuchadnezzar. That's how he sees himself, that's how he builds himself. And we don't live in a world that that's much different. We see CEOs, we see professors or deans, we see all kinds of people using others to build themselves up. And Nebuchadnezzar as an intelligent king is taking the best and brightest of Israel. And think of what this would have been like for Daniel. For Shadrach, for Meshach, and Abednego, they're literally plopped in the middle of the Las Vegas Strip with a VIP carte blanche card that says you can go anywhere you want and you can do anything you want, enjoy. How many of you uh, have ever watched Pinocchio? The creepy old-school one, yeah, not the new one, the creepy old-school one. You remember when the boys are brought into that place where they're just given everything that they want and they don't even realize what's happening but they start turning into donkeys, right? And it's this horrible picture of what happens when the world begins to saturate and indoctrinate us and pull us away from God's word. And it's the tools of the enemy in which very subtly they go, hey, eat this food, watch this show, read this book. Learn this language, participate in all these things. And before you know it, the foundation that has been built on God's word can go by the wayside very quickly. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to do to the young men that he's brought into his kingdom. If you're taking notes this morning, I want you to write this down. We're gonna look at how the enemy will attack our spiritual disciplines. The enemy will attack our spiritual disciplines. What's a spiritual discipline? reading your bible Bible is a spiritual discipline what else prayer is a spiritual discipline what else fasting is a spiritual discipline there are many spiritual disciplines and here's the important thing to know about spiritual disciplines they do not save you they are not something that you can do and then earn salvation instead we're given salvation freely from Christ and from that comes character change and part of that character change is exercising or putting into practice or living out spiritual disciplines bless you And we see that Nebuchadnezzar goes right after the spiritual disciplines of these young men from Judah. Now think about this, the Jews had very strict food laws. There's whole sections of the Old Testament that are dedicated to what Jews can and cannot eat. And God puts those boundaries there for a reason. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you know that food can become an idol quickly in your life? People are still raising their hands. That's a, that's great. That's great. I just think of the village where we live, right? We got Pizza Port and Poyos Maria's and handles And, I mean, it's all here. It's all here, and Daniel and his friends weren't experiencing something much different. They sit down at this table, and it says that the king's delicacies and the king's wine was brought to them, which means this. They brought out Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, where you didn't have to pay for the sides. It just came with it. (laughs) They had In-N-Out. They had Chick-fil-A, and in Babylon, Chick-fil-A's also served on Sundays. (laughs) Now we laugh, but think about these Hebrew young men who had grown up abiding by God's food laws. For the purpose of not being given over to gluttony because gluttony produces complacency and complacency leads us into all kinds of sinful things. God put these healthy boundaries there for a reason. And now these 13 to 17 year old boys who now have no family accountability, no church community, no one watching over them to encourage them, have all of this place before them. And Nebuchadnezzar goes, hey... I'm your new daddy, why don't you enjoy some food? Do you see what the enemy does? And the enemy attacks us in the same way. Notice that Nebuchadnezzar built a three-year program for these young men. We might as well just call it a four-year college degree program. That's what they were getting in Babylon. And here's what was happening. They were being indoctrinated, inundated, and saturated with every piece of garbage you can imagine. The ways of their gods, the ways of indulging in the flesh, how Nebuchadnezzar was the god, how Babylonian culture was the rule of the world and the way of life. And if you just did what the king said, you could have all this stuff. You could have positions of power. You could be wise in the eyes of man. This is where the enemy attacks us, is in our spiritual disciplines. And do you think that three-year program of learning the language and the culture of the Babylonians, do you think it was rigorous? You bet it was. In three years, you're supposed to become a fully indoctrinated Babylonian, so much so that you're now giving wisdom to who? The king himself. I'm sure their lives were filled with study time, with demands, with testing, and I'm sure that Nebuchadnezzar went after the spiritual discipline of resting in the word, of taking time to stop your day and actually spend time talking with God in prayer. In saying no thank you to certain foods, because man does not live on bread alone, but by the words that proceed from the mouth of God. Fasting was probably not something done in Babylon. Indulging the flesh was. And we see how the enemy begins to attack our spiritual disciplines. And so here's a question for you. How are you doing in your spiritual disciplines? How are you doing in your spiritual disciplines? Do you spend time reading God's Word? I'm not putting a time limit on it. I'm just asking, do you spend time reading God's Word? Do you spend time in prayer, and not just prayer of thank you, Lord, for this food and for this day, amen, but actually talking to God? Do we fast? And fasting can look like a lot of different things, but the purpose of fasting is to not have self-sufficiency or to not rely on just the things that we enjoy, but to put our trust and hope in God and allow Him to provide for us in ways in which we go, I'm not going to provide for myself at this time. Nourish me, Lord, with your word. The enemy attacks our spiritual disciplines, a brilliant tactic by King Nebuchadnezzar, and the same trick that Satan uses today, just maybe in a little bit different wrapping. The enemy will also attack our culture and knowledge our culture and knowledge. Verses four and five talk about this three-year program. They had to learn the language and they had to learn everything about Babylon, which included literature. It would have been the same as like, hey, I need you to watch these 50 seasons on Netflix, ready, go and binge. (laughs) But many of us do, don't we? And we're not even being forced to. We find it entertaining. And listen, there's nothing wrong with television or even Netflix until it begins to take the place of God's word and our relationship with him. And for Daniel and his friends, they had a choice. They had a choice to stay disciplined and to continue to cling to God's word. And Nebuchadnezzar goes after their culture and their knowledge. Think about this. Let's provide an insurmountable amount of work and test them so they have to give us the answers that we want to receive. Erase the foundations of whatever they've learned by flooding their minds with entertainment. Challenge their faith and principles by attacking their beliefs with doubt, with shame, with scientific evidence. Make them learn our language so that they begin to forget and forfeit the language of their family and their homeland. Twist their convictions so what they've been taught in their hearts that is sin and that they know is sinful, make that so incredibly celebrated and commonplace that it simply just begins to become normal. Give them the tastes of the flesh. And the pleasures of their carnal desires so that their bodies will war with their spirits. And with no temple to worship in, with no family to encourage them in, with no youth group to come alongside them, with no mission groups to be in fellowship with, they will crumble. This is what the enemy does. And it's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar was putting into practice with these four young men. Think about how the enemy has done this in different areas. We think of human sexuality. God created male and female. He created them in his image, male and female. Look what our society has done with that. And what ends up happening is it becomes a distortion of God's very image. So that when people who don't know who the Lord is start hearing about a God who made man and woman, they think of, man, this God is very confusing. He made a lot of mistakes because people don't know what gender or identity they are. And it becomes a distortion of God's image. Or we begin to think of marriage, and not just marriage between a man and a woman, but marriage in regards to the divorce rate that happens in our country. God made marriage as the reflection of Christ's love for the church, a covenant that was never meant to be broken. And when that covenant is broken, it becomes a distortion of who God is. Now, what I love about the Bible is God does not hate divorced people. He simply just hates divorce and what it represents what our culture has done is has, they've embraced it and said hey if your first one doesn't work out there's going to be a second one and that's totally acceptable it's okay it's okay just to say irreconcilable differences it's okay simply just to walk away from a commitment because if you're not getting what you want then what's, what's the point if you're not happy just get out of it and it begins to distort who God is in the covenant relationship that he has with us We think about parenting and discipline. Um, Ethan mentioned it when he was up here talking in regards to students and things that he sees on his campus. Parents are being pushed to no longer be the primary disciples of their children. There's a government system that wants to do that for you. There are other organizations that want to do that for you. And in the name of what's best for the country, that's what people are bowing to. And this is the tactic of the enemy. The enemy will attack our spiritual disciplines, our culture and our knowledge, and then lastly, our identity. What happens to Daniel and his friends' names? They all get changed. They all get changed. Listen to this. Daniel in Hebrew means God is my judge. Belteshazzar in Babylonian means Bel's prince or the God of Babylon's prince. Hananiah means beloved by the Lord. His new name, Shadrach, means illumined by the sun God. Mishael means who is as God, meaning a reflection of God. His name was changed to Meshach, who is the reflection of Venus. Azariah in Hebrew means the Lord is my help. And his name was changed to Abednego, which means the servant of Nego, another Babylonian God. Oh, isn't it just like Satan that he would want to rename us? You're so beautiful and popular and amazing. And everyone should want to look and be like you. You deserve to have 72 selfies on Instagram in one week. <laughs> and that becomes the identity. We've already talked about divorced, but there's, oh, you're divorced. What did you do? You're unworthy, you're unloved, you should be ashamed or it's no big deal. Satan tries to take the identity as a child of God and categorize it into our brokenness. Or what about powerful people or people who are wealthy? Hey, you're better than others because you have a higher education or a bigger bank account or a nicer house or a faster car. You should be celebrated. You are the picture of the American dream and people begin to buy into that nonsense and Satan has stolen their identity and turned it into something else. This is what Nebuchadnezzar was trying to do with Daniel and it's what Satan tries to do with us. Whether you are a follower of Jesus Christ, or you're just trying to get your head around who Jesus is this morning, Satan is always after us in these ways. He attacks our spiritual disciplines. And most often, he does this with busyness. It's usually busyness. There's other ways he gets to us too. But in our culture, it tends to be busyness. Man, I just, somehow the week got away from me and I didn't have time or I didn't make time for... He attacks our culture and knowledge. Which is why a program like Awana is serious. It's not just a fill time for kids. It's not an after school program. Listen, we want to literally take God's word and saturate these kids with it because they have a lot to face as they grow. And if they don't have a foundation, if they don't have a North Star to turn to, they will wander. It's why we're doing it. And then lastly, the enemy attacks our identity, going after who we truly are according to God's word. Now, all of this is coming down on some 13 to 17-year-old boys. I ask you again, what were you trying to figure out at 13 to 17? Who knows? But this is heavy stuff. This is a lot for some young teenage boys. And yet we see something powerful in verse 8. You still with me, church? But Daniel purposed in his heart. Everyone say purposed in his heart. Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now, a couple of things here. Purposed in heart. You can write this down. Um, It means resolved to stand firm. Resolve to stand firm. It's more than just in your brain going, oh, I'm not going to participate in that. It's actually putting action steps into practice to keep yourself from defiling your own body or your own walk with God. Um, Another way to say it is to fix your heart on God or to live a sanctified life. If you were with us last week, we talked through Matthew chapter 26. We looked at Jesus predicting Peter's denial. And in Peter's own strength, what does he tell Jesus? I'll never deny you. I'll go to war for you. I'll go to prison for you. I'll even what? I'll even die for you. And Jesus goes, oh, Peter, you say this in your own strength. You're trying to white knuckle this the best that you can. Your emotions are involved. You're sincere, but your flesh is weak. Your relationship with me is not where it needs to be. But in this case, when we see Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, when Daniel, it says, was purposed in his heart, it means that Daniel had a foundation. And that foundation was on what? It was on God and his word. And we're going to see how we know that's true. Look at this. Daniel, out of all three of those things, right? He's got the spiritual discipline, which includes uh, the food laws. He's got culture and knowledge being indoctrinated for three years. And then he has, uh, what was the third one? Identity, a name change, right? A name change. Out of all of them, Daniel decides he doesn't want to participate in what? The food portion. And maybe from a surface level, we're like, why is that such a big deal? I mean, how many of you would like your name to be changed, like someone just comes to you and says, you're no longer gonna be Susan, your name is now going to be, you know, fill in the blank. No no one wants that, but why didn't Daniel take his stand there? Because his identity was already where? It was already in God. Daniel's got the attitude of, you can call me whatever you want, doesn't change my identity, feel free. Well, what about the culture and knowledge and this indoctrination program that was going to take three years? Why didn't he say no to that? He was still holding on to what he had. He's like, hey, I can learn about the Babylonians. I can learn a new language. I can learn all sorts of things. It will not replace my foundation that is already built on what I know. Everything will come through the lens of who God is in my life and what his word says. So why is it That Daniel takes his stand with food and the king's delicacies and wine. Because God's word specifically tells Daniel what? You're not supposed to eat certain things. It's black and white. You can find it in Leviticus. You can find it in Numbers. It's right there in the Old Testament in the Pentateuch. Those first five books of the Bible. Daniel knows God's word and he goes, I cannot make an exception in this area. I cannot make an exception in this area. Now here's what I love about Daniel, and this is where Peter was lacking that we looked at last week, and where Daniel, even as a very young man, is grounded. Is that Daniel knew that the diet, the food, was not the real battle. It needed to be dealt with, but that wasn't the real battle. What was the real battle? It was a spiritual battle about Daniel's soul and where he was going to give his allegiance and bow. Daniel knows this. He understands, hey, there's a spiritual battle raging well before there's a physical battle happening. And Ephesians chapter 6 reminds us, Paul says in verses 10 through 13, he says, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Let's stay right there for just a moment. Was Daniel fighting Nebuchadnezzar? Who is he fighting? Satan, Satan. and he knows it. He's not trying to give his middle finger to Nebuchadnezzar. He's not putting up his red or his blue or his protest sign to the government. He's going, wait a minute, there is a deeper battle here. And this is between my relationship with God and the spirit that lives in me and then the enemy himself. This is what I need to focus on. That will take care of itself as I obey God's commands. That is the right way to approach the battles that we face. Whether it's things in our control, Like decisions that we make about what we watch or what we participate in or the things that we do for a living or things that are out of our control like health issues or sometimes relationship problems. It begins with the spirit. It begins with weapons of warfare that have nothing to do with something that we can tangibly hold in our hand to fight with. It has everything to do with what God equips us with in order to get into the spiritual battle. And that equipping comes from his word and from his spirit. Let's finish off the verse. Therefore, put on every single piece of God's armor, so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will be standing firm. This is the direction that Daniel is headed with his friends. His desire is to stand firm in the spiritual battle that he's placed with. Because if he makes an exception with this food, what comes next? Who knows? But it's a slippery slope from there, isn't it? And when we give in to the desires of our flesh, we're more likely to continue give giving in to the desires of our flesh. Verse 9 Now God had brought Daniel in favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink, for why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel tells the chief eunuch, he goes, hey, we would really like to eat something different. We don't want to eat these things. They've been sacrificed to Babylonian gods. They're against our food laws. I don't feel comfortable eating this in the relationship that I have with the Lord. I would like to go towards a vegetarian diet. And... The chief of the eunuchs comes back and he has a pretty good point. He says, hey, uh, yeah, that's all fine and good. But when you show up looking emaciated or skinnier than all the other guys, it's my head on the chopping block. Does he have a good point? Yes. Yes, he has a good point. Now, here is where God's character is evident in Daniel. Here is where we specifically see that a heart fixed on God produces an abundant life. Daniel doesn't start a food protest. He doesn't stage a, fine, I'm not eating. And then sits there and wastes away for three weeks. He doesn't get out his picket sign and start screaming and yelling and making a big scene and acting like a baby till people give him what he wants. Something our country could probably learn a lot about. He doesn't go burning things. He doesn't go crushing property. He doesn't go doing all these things to bring himself attention. Instead, he takes the character of God and the wisdom of God's word. And he sees from the master eunuch or the chief eunuch's perspective and goes, Wow, you've really got a good point there. That would be unfair of me to ask you. How about this? Verse 11, so Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the other young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, then deal with your servants. What's 10 days over the course of three years? It's nothing. Is there a significant risk for this eunuch to test them for 10 days? No, there really isn't. Do you see the wisdom of what Daniel is doing? Instead of making a big scene, instead of kicking and screaming like a baby, he goes, how can we work together so that I can honor the Lord in my relationship with Him? How about 10 days? You give us the food that we ask for, and then afterwards, test us. See if we look better or worse than these other young men. Now what's amazing about Daniel's faith is he is walking in obedience because he knows God's word, therefore he knows God's will for his life, and he's really putting his own faith to the test to go, God will show himself faithful. When I walk in obedience, God will show himself faithful. And this isn't faithfulness of like, oh, he owes me money. Or, hey, I invested $10 into the offering box, and so now I get 100 No, that's not what happens in an abundant life when our hearts fixed on God. Here is what happens. A heart fixed on God glorifies God and not self. A heart fixed on God glorifies God, not self. Why is Daniel wanting to change his diet? For whose glory? It's for God's. And this isn't about the diet. This isn't about becoming a vegetarian church family. It's not about becoming the the most shredded or the ripped person who has like an eight-pack of abs or whatever it is. That's not what Daniel was doing. It wasn't his purpose. His purpose was to walk in obedience so that he could continue in his relationship with God. And here's what's amazing. Don't miss this. Daniel had been exiled from his homeland and for good reason because of the sin of their people. But God was putting Daniel in a place to steward a secular job. How many of you work in the secular environment, AKA not a church environment? That's almost everybody, no one up top works. No one raised their hand up there. Common grounds, 8 and 10 a.m. in the morning for you guys, so. Here's what's amazing, God has a secular position for Daniel within the Babylonian government. He's raising him up to speak wisdom to the king of Babylon and to oversee the province. And it benefits Babylon if Daniel maintains his relationship with who? With God. Isn't it amazing how as God desires for us to have the best life possible, which is a deep relationship with him, it will overflow into what he's called us each to do, whether that's being a parent or a grandparent, whether that's being a janitor or a lawyer or a doctor or whatever it is that you do, God desires to use his relationship that he has with you in order for you to steward well what he's gifted you in the secular world. It's not for your glory, it's for God's glory. That's why Daniel is asking for the change of what comes on the table. We see in Genesis chapter 41, how many of you know the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis? Um, Joseph, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, has a pretty rough life and ends up somehow second in command of all of Egypt through all these miraculous things God is doing. Doesn't come without trial, doesn't come without difficult circumstances, but there he is standing before Pharaoh interpreting Pharaoh's dream. And listen to the language that Joseph uses. Joseph says this as he speaks to Pharaoh about interpreting his dream. This is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. And the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice because the thing is established by God and God will shortly bring it to pass. What's the theme here from Joseph? Who's Joseph pointing Pharaoh to? God, not himself. He doesn't stand there and go, "Well, I mean, I'm I'm a Christian, so I'm pretty I'm pretty brilliant. I'm pretty wise. I know my stuff." That's not what he does. Instead, Joseph goes, listen, it's not my power, it's not my ability, it's God's. And then notice Pharaoh's response. And Pharaoh said to his servants after hearing Joseph, can we find such a one as this man in whom is the spirit of God? Who does Pharaoh inevitably end up glorifying? God, because he sees God in Joseph. Well, it won't be but one chapter later in Daniel that Daniel is interpreting a dream from Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar ends up falling on his face and worshiping who? Worshiping God. Now, whether it's genuine or not is a whole conversation that we don't get to have today. But throughout Nebuchadnezzar's life, he constantly sees Christ taking place in Daniel. So Daniel proposes this well-thought-out, rational plan. Hey, test us. See what happens. Verse 14. So he, meaning the chief unit, consented with them in this matter and tested them ten days. And at the end of the ten days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. How many of you want to be on a diet where it's like, yes, I got fatter. High-five me. <laughs> Now, I don't want to belabor this too much, but it's important to note, when you go on a vegetarian diet in comparison to an a la carte buffet in Las Vegas diet, which person is going to appear fatter in flesh? The Yeah, the buffet people. It's God's sovereignty and his mighty working through these men that somehow they appeared better. There was an actual visible appearance in which the chief eunuch went, wow, that worked. And notice, no, 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 sermon's not over yet, turn your alarm off. (laughs) People have started notifying Dave and I like when it's time to... (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. (laughs) Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Now, here's what is so important. Obedience leads... To this, a heart fixed on God focuses on God's Word. A heart fixed on God focuses on God's Word. Now that these young men were able to continue not to have to worry about their mealtime. And think about this. This was a big deal. Every single day they would have had to sit at a table where they felt convicted, shameful, and guilty. And God removes that from them so they can simply just keep their eyes on who God is And it's for the purpose so that they can stay saturated in God's Word while they go through this three-year fast course on Babylonian culture. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. These young men are somewhere in their teens, maybe 20, but probably still in their teens. And the day has come. It's time to see if that certificate that got 100000 to $250,000 invested in you over the last three to four years is worth anything. You've got your big interview. Here we go. Oh, by the way, the guy that's interviewing you likes to chop people's heads off. So I hope it goes well. We go into interviews and we hope we get the job. And sometimes if we're desperate in a tough financial situation, it means a lot to us. We feel that angst. We feel that weight. How do you think Daniel and his friends felt going into that interview? My assumption is they probably felt pretty confident. Not arrogant, but confident. And they go and they stand before Nebuchadnezzar. And verse 19 says this. Then the king interviewed them. And among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm that is mind-blowing we're talking about the empire that ruled the world the smartest guys on the planet are a part of king nebuchadnezzar's court and these whippersnapper teenagers come in and it says they were 10 times better than any wise men that nebuchadnezzar had who do you think was most surprised The king. probably the king who are these guys Get Ashpenaz back in here. You go, you go train some more dudes, and you know Ashbanaz was like, they ate vegetables. <laughs> That's where the story breaks down. It's a whole story about just you know health and nutrition. It is about health and nutrition, but what kind of health and nutrition? The spiritual nourishment that God provides. It cannot be underestimated. And it amazes me. That in my own life, the thing that also most falls by the wayside first are some of those spiritual disciplines. And it happens subtly. But before you know it, you're like, oh my goodness, a whole week's gone by and I don't think I've spent any time with the Lord. Why am I struggling with this again? Oh, it's because I'm not spending any time with the Lord. A heart fixed on God produces an abundant life that is evident to all. A heart fixed on God produces an abundant life that is evident to all. This was evident to Nebuchadnezzar. He saw it in these young men. And whether you're young, middle-aged, or older today, that does not matter. What God is teaching us is that he has gifted us the equipping that we need to have a heart that is purposed toward him. To have a heart that is fixed on him. And when we know the enemy's schemes and attacks, we can begin to put into practice what is most important. We can begin to put into practice seeking God's glory and not our own. We can begin putting into practice a focus on God's word instead of a focus on self or the things that we simply want or desire or are told to go chasing after that will make us important or better than others. And when we get to verse 21, we get a little history. It says, Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. Um, if you know about the story of Daniel, yes, Daniel is a teenager at this point, but he serves through four kings Nebuchadnezzar, and then Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar, and then Darius the Mede, who takes over the Babylonian Empire, and then Cyrus, who takes over after Darius. And what's amazing is during that entire time until Daniel is a very old man, which, by the way, is probably when Daniel in the lion's den takes place, he's old. Not once have we seen Daniel chase the things of this world. He has kept his heart fixed on God, and it's not rocket science. It's not because he's some stud that none of us have an opportunity of becoming like Daniel. It's simply because... He purposed in his heart, hey, I'm not going to defile myself with all the things that are made available to me. I could, but it's not what's best for me. Therefore, I'm going to keep my heart fixed on God. I encourage you this week, identify the things that are defiling your life. And it can be as simple as a thought process all the way to what we see with our eyes or the words that come out of our mouth or the very business dealings that we're doing but identify the things that are defiling you. Repent of your sin and get back on track with God. Purpose your heart toward him to say, God, I'm no longer gonna defile myself with these things. Help me to walk in your ways. Help me to actually exercise the spiritual disciplines to put into practice what your word teaches me. Because a heart fixed on God produces an abundant life. An abundant life is what God wants you to have. And he wants you to have it because then it's evident for what? It's evident for all to see. It's the testimony of Jesus in the flesh. It's what people look at and go, wow. If that's what Jesus looks like, if that's what his character is like, I want to know that God, not the distorted view of God that the world is providing. Let's pray, church family, and then we'll continue to worship. Lord, thank you for this morning's chapter in Daniel and that your word is true and right and trustworthy. Lord, it's one thing for us to know it. I know it well, but it's another thing to put it into practice, which is hard to do. Lord, it's by the foundation of your life, death and resurrection through your son, Jesus Christ, that we can be purposed in heart, not in our own strength. But in what you've done to free us from the power of sin and death. Lord, you call us to participate in that sanctified life, that life that becomes more and more like Jesus by actually identifying the things that are defiling us, putting them aside, and walking with you. So, Lord, I pray that as a church body and for individuals in this place, Lord, that you would purpose in their heart for them to give up the things of this world and to be nourished with what is good and lovely and pure and true. Lord, thank you that no matter where you're at, when we come to you in humility and repentance, you are willing to receive us with open arms. God, we give you glory for who you are and what you've done. We thank you that you call us to participate in the work that you're doing in us. May we answer that call with a heart fixed on you in Jesus' name.